Welcome to the Carrero Podcast. Before we get started today, we would like to inform our listeners that Carrero is supported by edX Global. It's an international nonprofit where we work with K-12 students as they work with their local and global communities, providing service learning activities. In 2022, we are asking for your support in raising $20,000. It is to assist our students and their activities in creating gardens for schools and communities, purchasing and delivering blankets for the homeless, providing curriculum for teachers across the world, purchasing backpacks and filling them with educational items for students in need, and collecting and delivering food and toiletry items for the local homeless organizations. You can donate with Venmo using at edacts-global, or you can go to our website, which is www.edaxglobal.org, spelled edacts G-L-O-B-A-L dot org and donate. We appreciate your support. Thank you. Hi, I'm Malia Hoffman and I'm here with Fred Ramirez. Today our guest is Ashley Parker Snyder. A graduate of Bates College in Lewiston, Maine, Ashley captained the tennis team her senior year and graduated with a Bachelor of Arts in English in 1986. A college internship in Washington, D.C. led to a position as a trip coordinator in the Office of Presidential Advance following graduation. At the close of the Reagan administration, Ashley was offered a position at the Department of Housing and Urban Development, working in Jack Kemp's Office of Public Affairs. Ultimately, however, Ashley's sense of family duty kicked in, and she returned home to California to work in the family's fledging wine business, marry, and start a family. Hi, Ashley. Thanks for joining us today. In your bio, you shared that you were working in D.C. And what was one thing that you would have liked to have known before working there? Um, I wish someone had given me a heads up about the humidity in the summertime. That was <laughs> incredibly brutal. <laughs> but uh, fortunately, it was the kind of job where you got up early in the morning and went to work and usually didn't leave until after the uh, afternoon thunderstorm. So... Um, you know, it's hard for me to talk about my DC days. I don't mean to digress, but it's, um, just so disheartening to see what has happened in Washington. Um, right now I am a fully recovered Republican. I don't mean to get too political, but I did work for Ronald Reagan at the time. And then I worked for, um, I was a schedule C appointee in the George Bush administration too. when I worked at head. And things were far more collegial and um, cooperative. And um, it seemed like people were, it seemed like the senior staff and people were working for the country and not just for themselves. And um, it's just, it's really hard for me to, to kind of uh, be okay with what's going on now. Um, you know, I, I don't know what I wish I had known. Um, I, it was a great experience. I went to a very small liberal arts college up in Maine and it was a very, very liberal school. 
Um, in fact, my very conservative father called it that GD liberal, liberal arts college, <laughs> which was funny. Um, but I ended up absolutely adoring the experience. Um, I have strong ties there, you know, still. Um, and it was really good for me to kind of broaden my horizons, get out of California and go East. And I would recommend that to anybody who is, has the opportunity to kind of go somewhere and live in a different climate and really a different culture from California. California is very much a thing unto itself, I think. And, uh, it's good to like live in snow when you don't have to raise your kids in it and, you know, drive in it and just learn how to learn how to cope a little bit. Um, did you get a lot of snow in DC? Sorry. Did you get a lot of snow in DC? Oh my God. If they got an inch, like the world was ending, it was, it's like hilarious. They, they do not handle sort of weather their yeah. crises very well. No. So I went from, you know, six feet of snow in a weekend in Maine to you get an inch in DC and right. all the roads shut down and the government shuts down. So it was kind of, kind of amusing. Um, <laughs> but yeah, no, I mean, I'm, I, I don't know. I think I'm a lot like my dad in the, in the fact that if I have an opportunity to do something, I tend to just jump in. So I may have been woefully unprepared when I showed up back there, but I think I made the best of it. And had some great jobs and made some great friends. And I don't think there's, you know, you can't really ask for more than that. So then Ashley, can you, can you talk about that then when, what, you know, going, going from, from your school, then majoring in, in, in something, getting, getting very, some very great positions. I mean, yeah. you, you well, know, no, I mean, it was, it was, it's funny because what I did, I was a trip coordinator in the office of presidential advance um, and I got the job because I was a White House intern. I like to say before that was a bad thing <laughs> um, or a scandalous thing. But um, so so the trip coordinators, basically, we wrote the minute by minute, line by line, movement by movement schedule for the president every time he left the White House or did an event in the Rose Garden or Violet stopped snoring or uh, or did an event in room 450 in the old executive office building. So. It was, um, it was great, but it was very low level, really. And we interfaced with White House Secret Service, the White House Travel Office, speech writers, um, seriously, pilot. Um, but it wasn't policy-oriented at all, although we did rub elbows with people from legislative affairs and all the different offices. Um, so it, it was great. It was low level, but I literally got to travel all over the world um, all over the country. I went to a lot of um, states and towns that I never would have visited otherwise. I got to spend, you know, three weeks in Italy and Venice when the economic summit was happening. I got to um, be in London and, you know, you see ambassadors' homes and you just kind of roll with it. And um, it was uh, it was super fun. Um, it was long hours. It was um, It was hard work. It was a lot of travel. Your job was your life. But again, I think right out of college, that's something um, to be expected. And, you know, I look back on it and frankly, some of those people are as, as close of friends as, you know, my college friends. So um, it was great. It was just a time, you know, a time in your life where you just are so wholly engrossed in your job. And it it's great. I look back on it with great fondness. And so, and so now talk about Trent, like, Transferring that now, you're being called back home, and and at least at least that's at least that's what it sounded like within your within your bio. So now you're traveling all over the world. Now you're going to this little part of 
California. Um, right. Yeah, that was that was an adjustment, Fred. Um, so yeah, Fest kept saying, "Come home. We're starting a winery, and you can be on the ground floor." And I'm like, "Okay." So when when Reagan left office and Bush came in, I drove cross country with a girlfriend and um, made it to Los Olivos to find um, my dad and my brother standing out in a pasture saying, let's build it here. No, <laughs> let's build it here. And all I could think of was I am out of here because this is not, you know, I'm not going to, I really, and I love my dad and he was very inclusive um, about a lot of things, but I knew I wasn't really going to have a say in how that whole thing worked out. And so I was offered a job to go back to DC again, to work in Jack, Jack Kemp's um, public affairs department. So that's when I took off. But when I came back for good, and it was kind of cute because I told Kemp I was leaving and he, he was like, Jack Kemp was an interesting person, a, a California guy, went to mm-hmm. um, Occidental, um, uh, worst backseat driver known to man, but a real family guy and had a lot of daughters. And, and I told him, I said, Jack, I'm going back to California. I'm going to go to law school and I'm going to help my family start um, this winery. And he goes, don't go to law school. Don't go, don't go to law school. Help your family with the business. But he was really like against me going to law school, which was funny. Wow. Um, but anyway, so yeah, so when I came back for good, I lived in a converted barn on my parents' ranch where the winery is now located. And the, and Los Olivos is still a tiny little town. Yeah. I'm telling you then, I mean, the sidewalk oh rolled up at like 8 p.m. So what, 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 what year was this? So that was, uh, I moved home for good in 1990. Oh my gosh. Yeah. yeah. And there was nothing. I mean, Los Olivos was still primarily art galleries. Um, there was a little in there that our, my, our family actually owns and runs now. Um, but there were no restaurants to speak of. Um, and it was very quiet and very slow. So I lived, I only lived on the ranch for about six months. And then I moved to Santa Barbara to, uh, you know, the big city, Santa Barbara. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So, so today there are universities in the U.S. where you can major in winemaking. What would you tell high school students wishing to learn about that? Yeah, I mean, honestly, um, I wish I had had the science background to have been able to study uh, winemaking. I think if you're strong, uh, you're strong in chemistry um, and, um, and, and math to a certain extent. Um, but, you know, UC Davis and Fresno State... And um, Cal Poly San Luis Obispo has a great program now. Um, and I think, um, I think it's great. Actually, interestingly enough, both of our winemakers, um, Blair Fox, uh, who is Blair Fox Cellars, and um, he's been with Fest Parker and Epiphany for, gosh, head winemakers 15 years now. And then Tyler Eck, he went to UCSB. Um, both of them started at UCSB um, but and majored in other things. Blair was going to be pre-med um, until he transferred to Davis and started taking. Um, he was the first class, I think, to have a, a um, joint uh, viticulture and enology degree. Um, but I think, you know, if it's a passion of yours, what I would suggest is go to college, get a get a good maybe liberal arts, you know, kind of diploma then travel a little bit, volunteer, or get some paid internships in different wineries. And you can get those pretty darn easily 
all around the world. Wow. So it's a great way to see the world. It's a great way to get your feet wet, really see. And I mean, really get your feet wet because winemaking is very, um, it's hard work. It's kind of monotonous. It's very labor intensive. If you're on the physical winemaking side of it, um, and our guys, you know, Blair and Tyler are in the cellar all the time, but I would say get a, get a general degree, you know, maybe something with marketing, something with business, because if you're going to go into the wine business, you're going to end up wanting your own winery. So that background in business and in marketing is going to be helpful to you. Um, but then do the hands-on stuff after you get your degree and maybe go back, go back for, um, a certificate or a degree in winemaking. I know a lot of very talented winemakers that don't even really have formal education. They learned everything they um, needed to kind of hands-on, maybe in somebody else's cellar. But it's a pretty, um, it's not, you know, everyone says, oh, I want to pick grapes. Oh, I want to, you know, work harvest. And I'm like, oh, are you sure? Because it's really exhausting, kind of backbreaking, monotonous work but it does give you um, a neat insight into a particular vintage and the whole process and it makes you appreciate kind of the the final product a whole lot more so I don't know if that answered your question but I would say get get a degree um, in something useful and transferable you know like business or marketing or hell I'm an English major so I write a lot of the um, point of sale material for the winery. I write back label copy, wine making notes, our email blasts, all that kind of thing has come in handy um, for me. So, um, and then if you if you're still passionate about it, do the hands on bit and and be sure about it. Yeah, because that would that's that was going to be a follow up question. Is like what were the resources that that you had in order to transition yourself into the, into the wine industry, but, but then also what was your learning curve like? Um, well, they still won't let me drive the forklift. (laughs) Um, I, I mean, my, my resources were basically just being there from day one and kind of, you know, being part of the silly mistakes that we made on being part of it firsthand. Like we thought, okay, we really want to, we want to make a splash, um, but we don't want it to be trading on Fess's name. You know, we, we're just going to release the wine under the name Parker. Uh, it's not going to be Fess Parker. It's going to be Parker, Santa Barbara County, and we're going to roll with that. And it was like crickets. <laughs> it was like crickets. And so, you know, then, you know, my dad was kind of like, guys, I don't mean to make this about me. But we have an advantage with the name Fess Parker that we're not taking advantage of. Correct. So our so our eighty nine vintage was Parker, and our all of our subsequent vintages have been Fess Parker, and and he learned that from Walt Disney. You know, he learned that from his days with Disney. If you've got an advantage, you've got name recognition, you got to take advantage of it. The second thing was we decided we're gonna. Oh my gosh, our packaging is gonna be so great. We're gonna release our wines in. in uh, horizontal, like lay down boxes, not like your typical, you know, uh, nine liter case box yeah. that you see all the time. Well, that was great, except the bottles we chose didn't fit in bottle racks. Oh. We couldn't palletize our wines properly, you know, because they didn't stack on a pallet, like 52 cases in a pallet. Nope. So, yeah, we set ourselves apart by being a huge pain in the neck for <laughs> our distributors. So, there was that. So, I mean, it's really just a matter of being there kind of 
um, you know, day in, day out and making mistakes and then, you know, hopefully learning from them. And I mean, because when we started the winery, we were trying to, um, plant vineyard. We were trying to source fruit. We were trying to make wine, um, kind of build a brand, you know, expand our distribution. We were trying to do everything at once and build the actual physical plant, which took us four years to build the winery building proper. Mm-hmm. Um, so we, you know, we didn't know a lot going in, but we, we learned fast and the learning curve was steep. I would equate it to snowboarding where, uh, you know, it may only take you 10 days to really figure out how to do it, but damn, it hurts in the process. <laughs> I so. love that analogy. Yeah. I, I love Spot that. On, I can totally me. identify with that for sure. Uh, it sounds like you could have used a logistics officer on your team. <laughs> we, you know, we, we, it was interesting. We hired a guy, our first winemaker, who um, actually studied, studied veterinary medicine, but he loved wine. He's still making wine to this day in Puglia, Italy. He's an American who went over there, and I don't know if you know much about southern Italy, but most of the grapes they grow over there get um, trucked up to northern Italy and blended into the more established winery and vineyards up there. He decided he was going to make grow grapes in Puglia and make Puglian wine and make a name for Puglia. And he's really done that. The label's called Amano, and it's a pretty interesting story. He's a, he's a, pretty, he's a pretty interesting guy, and he's been over there for 30 years now. Okay. So, um, so next podcast, uh, Fred. You know what? Yeah, down. you should get a hold of. I'll get. I'll put you in touch with Mark. He's great. Oh, that'd be cool. Yeah. Now, 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 Ashley. I've always seen you as this very strong, the strong female, um, and so I've. Uh, so I'm. I'm, I'm going to show my ignorance on this on this question. As a female within the wine industry, was there much push pushback towards you? No, no. You know what? Um, I think that women are making great strides in the wine industry. I have heard a lot of male winemakers say they think women have better palates. Um, And if you're strong in the, if you're strong in the cellar, you're strong with your chemistry analysis, you're strong with all of those things. um, And you know, you're, you work well with people. I, I would, I mean, I, I'm not a winemaker, so I have not received pushback in that regard. I've not received pushback in the sense that um, the nature of the wine business is changing and being family owned and operated is becoming sadly less of a reality. Um, There's so much consolidation in the wine business. There are so many smaller operations that are selling to conglomerates. Um, They tend to lose their identity a little bit. But for me being second generation in the business, being a Parker, um, you know, having been there from the beginning, going out and doing winemaker dinners and, you know, trade events, um, working with, with sales reps in different markets, it gives me, um, a lot of credibility and authenticity. And I don't know if that's a male or a female thing, Mm -hmm. but I have never felt any, yeah, you get a little missy, you know, every once in a while, but that happens in any, you know, it can happen just going to the store who knows but I will say it was odd for me um traveling around the country and working in different markets I I spent most of my adult life doing the thing my father told me never to do which is don't get in a car with a strange man because <laughs> you end up riding with sales reps all over the country and um and you have to be 
male or female, you've got to be a people person in this business. I mean, there's just no getting around it. You end up talking to, you know, on the spectrum of like Uber wine geek, um, to inebriated festival attendee, you know what I mean? And everything in the middle. So you've got to be able to kind of roll with it. Now, now what about, um, like, so when you guys started back in the, back in the early nineties, what, and, and once again, I'm going to show my ignorance with regards to the wine industry at that, at that time. Um, what was the, was there any, was there any, I guess, for lack of a better word, pushback with regards to California wines um, during the, <clears throat> during during this time? And then how how has Parker um, throughout those years managed to 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 make the label that you that you now are? Yeah, you know, I would I think you know that the 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 uh, if you see the movie Bottle Shock. Um, it's about the, the, the competition in France where I think it was Chateau Montalena came in first out of all of these different wineries in a, in a big event. And it kind of put California on the map, um, as, as a Santa Barbara County winery, I would say we are still fighting that perception that, you know, Napa and Sonoma are the only places that are making great wines oh, interesting. and, and, and to be really candid, I mean, although I think anyone who knows anything about wine will say that Santa Barbara County Pinot Noirs and Chardonnays are some of the best in the world. I mean, they're not Burgundy, but they're close. Um, we still we still get kind of leapfrogged over um, from a say a visitation standpoint. People people drive from Los Angeles right past Santa Barbara County and go to Paso Robles, and it makes me crazy. But I have to say that the Paso Robles Vintners Association did um, a lot of good marketing and, and a lot of good legwork um, in the last 15 years to kind of put themselves out there as, you know, the really fun destination to go wine tasting. Santa Barbara County is catching up. Um, the Vintners Association has received some grants in the last few years that have helped us target, you know, like Los Angeles and San Diego. And um, but but and. and you know, little humble brag. My husband, Tim, is uh, the president of the Vintners Association now. Um, for the second time, he was back in the early 2000s as well. But they're uh, they're getting it together. But I think um, I think we still we still fight that Napa Sonoma thing a little bit. But um, we we like to joke in Santa Barbara County. Hey, we're number three. You know, <laughs> it's, it's, it's like it's frustrating. But if you if you do know your wines and you are a fan of Burgundian varietals or Rhone varietals, I think um, you're going to find what you're looking for in Santa Barbara County. Um, some of the wineries here are a little more direct to consumer based, so you may not find them uh, distributed on the East Coast. You may not find them all over the country. A lot of people's production is small. Um, and that limits distribution as well, but that's all a choice, you know, made by the winery. So, um, it, we're still, we're still finding our way, um, as a Santa Barbara County winery, but, um, oh shoot, when is this going to air? Because I could, I could break some news that, uh, is embargoed until the 17th of this month, but yeah, yeah. we're gonna, it's going to launch on the 21st. Perfect. Yeah. So, um, Fest Parker Winery was actually just named a top 100 winery by Wine and Spirits magazine. Hey. Yeah, it's pretty nice. I mean, you know, and we've we've garnered really, really good press over the last 10 to 15 years. You know, really last 15 years. 
most of our wines score 90 points or higher. Um, we get a lot of, um, of what they call like seller selections, um, with like wine and spirits or wine enthusiast magazine. will give, you know, our Santa Barbara Chardonnay 90 points and an editor's choice. And I mean, that's just, that's, that's great. And, and so now when we get, if we ever get anything less than a 90, we're, you know, we're sort of reeling, but, um, <laughs> you know, it's all, it's all subjective and, uh, and the wines are doing really well. The winery's doing well. So, well, you know, when you get good press, I always say it's better than a sharp stick in the eye. So we'll take it. Are there any resources that you've used that have assisted you in your knowledge in the wine industry? Yeah, I've taken quite a few um, uh, classes through UC Davis Extension. Oh, nice. Um, yeah, it's been great. Um, I did a wine executive class during COVID, actually. Um, I've taken a sensory evaluation class up there. Um, I've also done, um, the guild song. Um, I'm a, I'm a, uh, I passed my intro song, um, test, I don't know, about six years ago. And then I also have a level two WSET certificate. So there are a lot of good educational, um, kind of platforms out there that you can, and you can kind of get geeky about it too. Like the next thing I want to get is a champagne certificate. Um, cause I love, I love sparkling wine and champagne. Um, my Instagram is bubbly biatch. So it, um, it's, it's, if I could drink it every day, I would, but, um, so yeah, there are a lot of great resources out there. Um, and again, you know, if you are interested in the wine business and you think you want to really kind of jump into it, I would, seek out one of your favorite wineries and see if there are opportunities for you to work, um, in a tasting room to work in the cellar. Um, it's all pretty, pretty achievable if you want to do it. And, and like I said, just sort of learning on the go is probably the best way to do it. And then what, what are one or two specific skills which have contributed to your own success? Um, I would say number one, my sparkling, engaging personality. Um, I I think honestly, like I said, I think being a people person is huge. If you're going to be doing what I do, which is sales and marketing, um, you have to be able to walk into a room and (laughs) sell your product, kind of sell yourself, sell your story. Um, and, and kind of read the room as well. Um, my daughter just did a, a ride along up in San Luis Obispo the other day and she was really nervous about it. And she goes, do I need to talk about the soils and the transverse mountain ranges and all of that? I said, you know what, Greer, probably not. You know, you're really in your own backyard and most of the people you're calling on are going to know that stuff. I said, just strike up a conversation about something else. You know, I, I told her, I said, I think I've probably sold more wine by commenting on the guy's dog that's in the wine shop with him than anything else, make a personal connection and then, you know, talk about the high points of your product, but don't tell them what they're tasting. Don't bore them to death with, you know, soil analysis and bricks and pH and just let them taste the wine and then work on that personal connection. And that's where it's going to happen. Of course, price is also important too. So, so then we that, always keep that in mind. So, so then that, that leads me to to another question. So you're second generation. Are your are your kids going to be third generation? Yeah. Um, oh. So uh, my Rodney's and my daughter Greer is uh, our director of marketing. So she's probably technically my boss. Oh wow! Yeah. You know, um, which is kind of fun. Um, 
our, uh, my son Spencer Shull um, has been uh, working for us on and off for the last five years um, since he graduated from college. He um, has been living in Denver, working in a wine shop, selling other people's wines, which kind of rubs me the wrong way a little <laughs> bit. But he's actually leaving Colorado tomorrow to drive out to California to work uh, Harvest 2022. So he'll be out here at least until um, probably mid-November. And we're hoping to lure him back into the, uh, into the fold uh, on a more permanent basis too. So um, yeah, so it's, it's great. Um, you know, that's what, that's what Fess wanted when we started this business. He really wanted, um, you know, I think he started it because he had a desire to do it. He was in the right place at the right time. And, and my brother had an interest. And then, you know, when I came back, he thought, okay, this, this is a family business. And my gosh, there are, you know, there are only two of us that are second gen. Um, obviously with my husband, Tim Snyder's help, he's been tremendous. Um, and, but there are so many grandkids and, and great grandchildren now. I think we've got a, I think we've got a decent shot of keeping it going for, for a number of years. Wonderful. Are there any myths that people talk about wine that you want to debunk? Yes, but it's, <laughs> but it's winemaking is magic. It's not magic. It's, it's science, science, but real. It's, it's science and 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 farming and luck, um, oh. and you know what ends up in the bottle can be kind of magic sometimes. But there's very little magic to it. It's you know it really all starts in the vineyard with with um, growing the right varietals in the right locations. You know, picking at the right time you know, having a spanking clean cellar and choosing the right yeast and monitoring things properly. And it's, you know, it's, um, it's being organized, it's being meticulous, um, and taking good care of the fruit that you bring in. And, uh, if you do that right, you've got a pretty good chance of, uh, of maybe making a little magic for someone on a date, but the whole thing is not magic. (laughs) That's funny. So then, so then, tell us about about your festivity brand. Oh my gosh, so fun! So um, we planted a vineyard in the late '90s um, called Ashley's. Um, we we subsequently wow. well, there's a story there. Remember yes. when I said I when I remember when I said I left the winery yes. and went back to DC. Well, Fest got pretty chapped at me. So for probably <laughs> ten years, our back label read. Thank you for choosing our wine. My son, Eli, and I have made this wine with a dedication to blah, blah, blah. Never mind that I came back a year later and, you know. Anyway, so I always joke that he felt guilty, so they finally named some dirt after me. Um, (laughs) But anyway, so we developed that vineyard out in Santa Rita Hills. um, And we source fruit also from uh, Rio Vista Vineyard, um, Fiddlesticks Vineyard, Sanford and Benedict, um, and another vineyard where we have a long-term lease on the land. We call it Parker West. And, and those vineyards are really close to the Pacific. Climactically, they, um, they are pretty similar to Champagne, except that we don't get the rain that they get in Champagne. Okay. It's very cool. It's in the 70s out there. You're a couple of miles from the Pacific and all that cold air comes in and, and makes for a really long growing season, great acidity in those grapes. So um, with, when we were making Pinot Noir and Chardonnay, I kept saying we should do sparkling. We've got the fruit source for it. So, uh, gosh, about what, six years ago now, we started festivity, um, you know, with two S's. People thought we were illiterate for a while, but we were obviously (laughs) doing a little wordplay there. Um, But so we pick those grapes early. 
um, when the bricks are lower, um, higher acidity, make the still wine and then take it through the whole process, which is really something people, anyone who complains about the price of sparkling wine or champagne should follow that whole process through. You touch that fruit and that juice so many times before it's released for sale. It, it's no wonder that sparkling and champagne is more expensive than anything else, but it is a hundred percent worth it. So um, yeah, it's been a great little um, kind of add on for us. It's fabulous. When we have wine dinners, we can start with a sparkling reception. Um, you know, we'd serve it with dessert. It's great for, you know, anybody's celebration, you know, Valentine's day and the bubble shack is always a ton of fun. That's our little tasting room in Los Olivos. So it's, it's nice to, um, a thing about the wine business that's interesting is it's kind of like the market overall, you have like price tiers, right? You have like your, your, your super value wines, your, your premium wines, your ultra premium wines and, and, and having the ability to have sparkling and then have, you know, beautiful Chardonnays, beautiful Pinots, kind of more fuller bodied red Rhone varietals can kind of take you through a wine dinner or a tasting in a way that you kind of touch all the bases and, and we're lucky in Santa Barbara County to be able to do, we can't do everything well. We can't, I would say grow um, Bordeaux varietals in Santa Barbara County really well yet. Although some people are doing a darn good job and gosh, with global warming, maybe that will become a reality someday. I kind of hope not, but um, it's nice that in Santa Barbara County, we can do sparkling wines really well and Pinots and Shards and, and Rhone varietals and, and kind of cover a lot of bases. Can you tell us about your work with uh, nonprofits? Yeah. Do you mean specific to me or specific to the winery? Oh, yeah. Both. Um, so I am a, uh, I'm a long-term member of like um, Cottage Rehabilitation Hospital Foundation. Fred, do you remember David Medina? Yes. So he was my, he was my pediatrician. He was mine. Um, and then, yeah, he, I think he was everybody in Santa Barbara's pediatrician. I saw him just a couple months ago. Sweetest man. Anyway, uh, he brought me on the board there, um, in Santa Barbara 25 years ago. Um, and, um, I've been on ever since they can't get rid of me. Um, but that's a great resource in Santa Barbara. Nobody wants to think about going to a rehab hospital and, Everybody drives down Delavina like this because they don't want to look at it, but we're lucky it's there. Um, I'm a former uh, board member of Direct Relief International, which is such a, I guess it's just Direct Relief now, but such a great organization in Santa Barbara. And at the winery, basically we've tried to, I mean, we do the one-offs, you know, the, the, a lot of school auctions with bottle donations and all that kind of thing. But I found just kind of tracking this over the years, I would rather do something on a, on a regular, more meaningful basis um, for nonprofits than to kind of sprinkle bottles here and there and, you know, tastings here and there. And you have to do a little bit of that. But we've, we've kind of decided that we support, you know, say 10 or 12 charities in a meaningful way every year. Like we're donating the wine for Santa Barbara Food Bank's Table of Life in October. We're doing a Santa Barbara Rescue Missions Bayou event in October. Um, so we try to do things with nonprofits in kind of a more substantial way, um, on an annual basis, and then maybe mix it up and and help somebody else out in a bigger way. Um, it's, it's hard because I don't think people that aren't in the wine business really have 
an idea of how often you get hit up, <laughs> um, but it's a daily occurrence. It's multiple requests, you know, daily, and you can't say yes to everything as much as you would like to. Um, but it's, um, it's fun and it's, it's led to some really great, you know, really great events and, um, and sponsorships. So, um, it's part of the business. It's great. But, uh, and, and I, I like to do things. Um, I like my philanthropic work personally and I, I enjoy it on the winery side too. Yeah. It's a good way to, I think, get recognition and also give back and connect, yeah, make yeah. more connections and, and, and with I think the it's, community. it's more about, I mean, you, you do want that recognition, but mm-hmm. you know, it's that, but it's more about giving back. But mm-hmm. I, I will say like, you know, there's a, another, uh, vintner in Santa Barbara County named Fred Brander who has to be like the most generous guy ever. Like, I don't think I've ever been to a charity event where I haven't seen something that Fred has donated and it's really nice. It's, yeah. um, it's nice to be able to, it's nice to be able to do it in that way. We're having a movie night, uh, August 20th. Um, all the proceeds go to the food bank. So that's easy to do too. Um, there's yeah. ways to, to break it up. So it's not constantly, you know, cases coming out of your, out of your warehouse, but, um, there's other ways to help out. Wow. Good. I'll keep that in mind for our nonprofit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So, um, um, Ashley, thank you. And one, and, and the last question that we, that we, that we always ask all of our guests is what is your one call to action? Um, and so, and, um, and so personally, what, you know, what, what would you want people to, um, at least leave with, with regards to what your call to action is? I have to, I'm going to, I'm going to drift back to the, to the political now. Um, don't live your life in a vacuum. <laughs> uh, listen to everybody, listen to different podcasts, listen to different news programs, read different periodicals, be open to other people's opinions, because if you start living your life in a vacuum, uh, it's, it's going to get ugly. And I, I think we're already there, sadly. Yeah. Good one. Ashley, thank you for sharing about wine today. It makes me thirsty. I wish I had some <laughs> champagne. I wish I wanted right to drink here. something. Having no sense of smell has definitely curtailed my... Uh, right. Tim brought me a Fiesta Margarita yesterday. And it was like... Oh. Like, uh, so...